are listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. And we are, as always, your hosts, Bill Winter. Hello. And I am Donovan Riley. Again this week, we dive back into Bushido, The Soul of Japan, a classic, classical essay on samurai ethics by Anazo Natobe. And we'll look at the topic of rectitude or justice. But before we do that, we will dive back into Stephen Pressfield's book, The Warrior Ethos, Meditation 24, Purity of the Weapon. The civilian sometimes misconstrues the warrior code. He takes it to be one of simple brutality. Overpower the enemy. Show no mercy. Win at all costs. But the warrior ethos commands that brute aggression be tempered by self-restraint and guided by moral principle. Soldiers of the Israeli Defense Forces, who often must fight against enemies who target civilians, who strike from or stockpile weapons within houses of worship, and who employ their own women and children as human shields, are taught to act according to a principle called Tohar Chanashech, purity of the weapon. This derives from two verses in the Old Testament. What it means is that the individual soldier must reckon himself what is the moral use of his weapon and what is the immoral use. When an action is unjust, the warrior must not take it. Alexander, in his campaigns, always looked beyond the immediate clash to the prospect of making today's foe into tomorrow's ally. After conquering an enemy in the field, his first act was to honor the courage and sacrifice of his antagonists and to offer the vanquished warriors a place of honor within his own corps. By the time Alexander reached India, his army had more fighters from the ranks of his former enemies than from those of his own Greeks and Macedonians. Cyrus of Persia believed that the spoils of his victories were meant for one purpose so that he could surpass his enemies in generosity. Quote, I contend against my foes in this arena only, the capacity to be of greater service to them than they are to me. Alexander operated by the same principle. Quote, Let us conduct ourselves so that all men wish to be our friends and all fear to be our enemies. The capacity for empathy and self-restraint will serve us powerfully not only in our external wars, but in the conflicts within our our own hearts. And again, that is The Purity of the Weapon, page 77 in The Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield. That um, he touches upon empathy, which is really going to bring us back to chapter three here in Bushido, then talking about rectitude or justice. Right. Um, misplaced empathy does no one any good, but well-placed, correctly placed empathy mm-hmm. is the difference between justice and injustice. Right. Well, and empathy, I guess the way that I understand it is not, I feel your pain, but rather I am going to stand on your side of the street and walk a mile with you, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That is, I want to try and comprehend what you're thinking or what your motives are or why you took that action before I myself 
make my mind up to judge you or to forgive you. So it's not a, a psychoanalytical approach to the topic or, again, purely feeling, but rather something that is thoughtful and intentional. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a podcast interview with Jim Webb, former uh, Marine, and also I think was he a senator? I think he was a senator from Virginia, I think. Something like that. Yeah, but he talks about that in his book too, his memoir, that to be a good leader, you have to understand, one, you have to know how to read the room, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You then, learning how to read the room, you have to learn to comprehend why people do what they do. If you want to lead people, you have to understand their motives and their intent. Mm -hmm. You can't simply walk in and start, Uh, barking orders at people and saying, do this this way because I say so and I'm in charge. Mm -hmm. You don't answer the why for people. They're not going to be motivated to carry out the mission. On the other hand, someone who's in a position of leadership who tries to empathize, over empathize, pathologically empathize with the people that work under him or her. Now all of a sudden you actually, you denigrate that position of leadership. You denigrate the office of the leader because now they're looking at you saying, well, I don't need you to cry with me. I need you to come up with a solution that we can execute to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you also denigrate uh, that person's issues. Yeah, right. You, you can't say, well, this or that person has had similar experiences. Ergo, I actually know what you're going through. No, you don't. This is a great point and a really important one, I think, to especially interpersonal relationships, whether they're just a family member or a friend, a spouse, a girlfriend, boyfriend, or a work type relationship. You can't possibly understand what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Even if, like you said, we had similar experiences, even if we experienced the exact same event while we were together, our perception and how we process that is going to be different because we're different people. I need you to understand. I simply need you to respect that the way in which I perceived those events, the way that I processed and acted upon those events is unique to me. And there may be similarities between the two of us or, or the group or however many there are. And that's fine. We have this point then of comparison, this point of we did this together. We walked together through this. But nonetheless, don't try and fix me or help me by saying, I totally understand where you're coming from or I get where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Versus if you, if you want my help, help me understand how I can help you. Tell me specifically how I can help you in this situation. Mm -hmm. And then we can develop a plan and then we can execute that plan. Rather than me saying, yeah, I've been through this before. So let me tell you what I did. And then you go and do what I did. And it'll it'll be fine. Because of course, if it doesn't work out, then they're going to blame the entire thing on you. Mm -hmm. And this goes to the point too, and I had to learn this the hard way from years of experience and failure is when you say you want to help someone, and I see this happening all the time, when we say to another person, I, I'm going to help you, and then they don't accept our help or they are critical of it or they push us away, we end up, of course, then pointing the finger going, um, what's your problem? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm trying to help. Why don't you want me to help? Well, usually that, that form of help takes 
on, like is expressed in this way. If you want my help, then this is how it's going to go. Mm -hmm. Versus how can I help you? Oh, you don't want my help? Okay, great. I understand. I respect your, your decision. If you need me, I'll be over here. Or, oh, you do need me to help you. Great. How can I help you? Tell me how I can help. Mm -hmm. And then walk me through it. Explain to me how, why, what, where, when, all these things. But we become so self-focused and so focused on if I help you, I'm going to get all these rewards, these benefits from helping you. I'm going to feel good about myself because I helped another person. And it gives me that sense of almost being like God because I'm doing something to change a person's life versus, no, I'm just going to ask the question and then I'll wait for the response. And based on the response, then I will act accordingly. Well, it does no one any good to say, I know what you've been through. Ergo, let's fix this. Right. Or whatever. Right. Because it fails to address the actual practical needs. Mm-hmm. And that, um, to, to reference back to Cyrus, for example, the reason he was so successful in his position as a leader was the fact that he wasn't empathizing with his troops in such a way that he said, well, let Daddy Cyrus come along and, you know, kiss the boo-boo. Right. Said, these, these men need to eat. They need a place to sleep. Uh, in the case of... Um, Oh man, what was her name? Um, the lady who ended up cutting her throat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in her case, well, she needs her husband. On and on this goes. Well, and that's another great point that you bring up, though, because in I'm just wrapping up Street Without Joy, the French debacle in Indochina that was written by Bernard Fall, and mm-hmm. the attitude of the French toward the Vietnamese, for example, was one of were essentially the parents in your children. Mm-hmm. And we know what's best for you. And what Fall points out over and over again is that when you're fighting a guerrilla insurgency, communist or not, the people are, one, terrified because when the French are there, they're, they feel threatened by the French. Mm-hmm. And then when the Viet Minh come in, they're threatened by the Viet Minh. So they're stuck in the middle. So they inform on both sides to save their own scalp. Yep. Number two, then, because of the lack of empathy from the French side of things, at least from Bernard, because that's the side Fall's on, so he's critiquing the, the French side of things they don't empathize with the Vietnamese because they don't see themselves as being equal with the Vietnamese. And therefore, when they say, well, we're going to, our campaign of changing hearts and minds, which you might have heard more recently from a certain United States president, <laughs> which they got from the French in Indochina. But yeah, the whole program of, well, we're going to change hearts and minds by building hospitals and schools and supplying basically a welfare system for the Vietnamese to rebuild what we destroyed. Mm-hmm. One, they could not comprehend because they didn't ask the question, well, what's going to happen as a consequence when the Viet Minh come back and find out we gave you rice and we gave you medicine and clothing and we built a school and a hospital? Well, they're going to burn it down. Mm-hmm. They're going to take all those resources we gave you for themselves and they're going to start chopping arms off yep. or worse. And because of that, like you said with, with Cyrus too, when you adopt an attitude or if you adopt this attitude of, And this is why I don't like whether it's a church or a business or any group of people outside my actual family referring to the people that you work with as your family. Mm -hmm. Because usually that means it's dysfunctional and we don't talk to each other. (laughs) Versus, well, in any family structure then, whether it's artificial or organic, there are 
parents and they're our children. And one of the things that you learn from Transactional Games, which is a book actually written in the late 60s by a, a couple who are were psychologists, behavioral psychologists. Yeah, good book. Every family dynamic plays these transactional games, which essentially means there's this script that's written. And each person in the family reads their lines from the script. So the baby of the family is always the baby of the family, no matter how old she is. Mom is always mom. She's the matron. She holds, she's the glue that holds the family together. Dad's the patriarch. He's the law. And then you have the oldest son or the oldest daughter who's the rescuer personality, the one who's responsible, the middle child, the invisible one, the forgotten one who's always trying to prove themselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when they're little kids and they need a mom and dad to be mom and dad for them, great. But when they're all adults with their own families and you're still playing those roles, it becomes much and more cartoonish, caricaturish, much mm. more absurd because you have a 48 year old who's behaving like an eight year old. Yep. Especially around the holidays, right? So oh gosh, yeah. as, as what happened with me anyways, in my family is when I threw the script out when I was 28 years old, the, the pushback that I got was just that. It was pushback. And I was told by relatives, you've changed. We don't like the way you've changed. Why can't you just, why won't you? And it's like, because I'm not that person anymore. Mm-hmm. And why can't you then accept me in the present tense for the person I am and get to know me in the present tense? Because I think that the present tense version of myself is a lot better than the alcoholic drug addict teenager that lied, cheated, and stole from you all those years. Mm-hmm. but the role had been written for me and therefore to try and bust out of that role, it, it wasn't just affecting me. It affected the entire dynamic of the family. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, within the family, it can be destructive, but then writ large, as we've been talking about with Cyrus or in the French uh, Indochina war, it can be genocidal actually. Yeah. And so I think we do have to be very careful then when we talk about empathy as we, as we hit upon. Also then to segue into Bushido, when you think or you formulate this approach to empathy of, well, I'm just trying to do what's best for you. Mm-hmm. I understand your pain. I've been through it before. Oh, I've been there. Let me help you. You can actually conduct yourself in a way that's hyper-destructive to another person or group of people. Mm-hmm. And say, I'm doing this for your own good. Yeah. You know, it's like the old cartoon of the, the dad with the boy over his, his lap spanking him saying, this hurts me more, worse than it hurts you. Well, as a boy who was beaten with a belt, no, it doesn't. It hurts me way more than it's hurting you. I Trust me. Mm-hmm. I'm 48. I'm still thinking about it. I definitely think I got the raw end of that deal. So let's dive into then this whole matter of rectitude or justice that he talks about in chapter three, which in your title is what chapter? Three. It is three. Okay. Just different page numbers. Mine's 46. Yeah. Mine's 15. And yours is 15. So let's dive right in. This is such a great chapter, in my opinion, that we're going to read the whole chapter. It's only three and a half pages, but we'll divide it up into three parts. So diving into rectitude or justice, chapter three of Bushido by Nazo Natobe. He writes, Here we discern the most cogent precept in the code of the samurai. Nothing is more loathsome to him than underhanded dealings and crooked undertakings. The concept, the conception of rectitude may be erroneous. It may be narrow. A well-known Bushi defines it as a power of resolution. Quote, rectitude is the power 
of deciding upon a certain course of conduct in accordance with reason without wavering. To die when it is right to die. To strike when to strike is right. Another speaks of it in the following terms, quote, rectitude is the bone that gives firmness and stature. As without bones, the head cannot rest on the top of the spine, nor hands move, nor feet stand. So without rectitude, neither talent nor learning can make of a human frame a samurai. With it, the lack of accomplishments is as nothing. Mencius calls benevolence man's mind and rectitude or righteousness his path. How lamentable, Mencius exclaims, is it to neglect the path and not pursue it, to lose the mind and not know to seek it again. When men's fowls and dogs are lost, they know to seek for them again, but they lose their mind and do not know to seek for it. Have we not here, quote, as in a glass darkly, unquote, a parable propounded 300 years later in another clime and by a greater teacher who called himself the way of righteousness through whom the lost could be found. But I stray from my point. Righteousness, according to Mencius, is a straight and narrow path which a man ought to take to regain the lost paradise. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and a side of chips. Mm-hmm. Notice here, because it's so, so incredibly important to his point, he is intentionally putting righteousness and justice together. Yes. Interchangeably. Mm-hmm. In other words, the one does not exist without the other and vice versa. Right. Whereas we have this idea today that in order to enact justice, I can be completely unrighteous. Right. Right. You know, um, I can destroy the reputation, livelihood, um, everything that another person or group holds dear and that then is justice the end justifies those means right and this is the thing too to to define the word righteousness very simply as a friend of mine does it it's essentially enoughness to be Mm -hmm. righteous is to to do enough but specifically to do the right thing it is the question of have i done enough of what is right and as I say to my kids too, you do what's right, not what's easy. Mm-hmm. And this is really, I think, the hook then or the catch when it comes to the matter of righteousness and justice. As you said, it's easy to justify injustice mm-hmm. in the name of doing the right thing at that time. Well, it's right that we punish you and destroy your reputation and, and work to get you fired from your career or your job because you did this thing that is unrighteous or immoral or unethical or illegal. Versus, does a person's unrighteous behavior then justify you acting likewise? Mm-hmm. And then we start making these kinds of hierarchical distinctions. Well, what he did was really, really immoral. And what I'm doing isn't so much immoral as it is trying to punish him for his immorality or unrighteousness. Exactly. This is why um, we have the anti hero in popular. A myth and in popular culture. Mm-hmm. The anti-hero is a villain. Yep. But we call him an anti-hero because he's a villain, first and foremost, to other villains. You think of the Punisher, for example. Yep. 
in comic Marvel comics, the Punisher is a, is a villain. He's a psychopathic murderer, but we give him a sentimental backstory that allows us to empathize with his plight and why he does what he does. And then we can kind of overlook the fact that yes, he does victimize criminals, but he also victimizes people that get in his way who aren't criminals. Mm-hmm. Because in the Punisher's mind, the ends justify the means. Doing exactly. what's necessary to cleanse the streets of the criminal element. And so mm-hmm. there's going to be collateral damage, but, and then yep. reason but. excuse versus what Toby says, there's nothing more loathsome to the warrior, to the samurai, than underhanded dealings and crooked undertakings. Mm-hmm. And as I noted in the episode that uh, kind of got destroyed because of our <laughs> tech issues, in Hebrew, the word crooked, the, the image then that is attached to that word is of a mountain road or path. And if you've ever gone through the mountains, traveled through the mountains, especially in, uh, let's say, less developed nations as I have, you can't see around the next corner. Mm-hmm. And therefore, crooked or wicked or evil is the image of walking around these, walking up these mountain paths, these crooked roads, because this is where the bandits would hide. This is where thieves would hide. They would hide around the corner. Yep. And you can see them. And therefore, the image of righteousness or justice in Hebrew is one of a straight road through a desert, a deserted place where there is nothing to um, infringe Oops. upon or obstruct your vision. Yeah. Well, that it's not just you're able to see where the the highwaymen are, mm-hmm. but everyone can see where you are Correct. and where you are coming from. Right. Um, and, and this goes to the point that he's going to get to in the second section about valor or bravery or courage, which is they can see me and I can see them. And am I mm-hmm. going to stand here as they ride in on me or am I going to run away? So nothing is more loathsome to the samurai, to the warrior than underhanded dealings and crooked undertakings. We would call that the easy path mm-hmm. because well, it, how much, how much effort does it really require to lie, cheat and steal from people? Exactly. Exactly. At least how, how much moral character or ethical, like how hard, hard is it to erase your ethical code or at least make a hole in that fence and slip through to do something that you know is immoral, unethical or illegal, but it benefits you. Mm-hmm. in the short term. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and that <clears throat> that's where the appeal of a lot of this stuff is. It is the easier path. It is the easier way. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people don't realize is that one of the worst things that could actually happen to them is that they win. Right, exactly. So, because the second the um, uh, the the patriarchy is destroyed, you guys are going to turn your guns on one another. Right, exactly. We all, yeah. It's a circle. It's a circular firing squad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. So. Yeah, you close ranks to protect yourselves, but then once the external enemy has been eliminated or driven off, you're going to turn on each other. Mm-hmm. And that's a long-term problem that one usually doesn't pay attention to in the present tense because you're focused on an external enemy, Mm -hmm. not recognizing that the internal enemy is already, again, it's you. We have met the enemy and the enemy is us as the old comic strip Pogo says. Yeah. Well, and there's a lack of reflection Mm -hmm. on uh, all of these issues when you're 
ideals, whatever those may be, require you to sink to the evil that you are supposedly fighting against, Mm -hmm. you're not going to actually convince anyone else that your position is superior except by pointing the gun, so to speak, at their head. Well, either that or you're going to only attract other people who are justifying their evil actions in the same method, using the same method or the same um, language mm-hmm. and ideas that you're using. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is that, as I think C.S. Lewis famously said, if you, want to, if you want to know the devil, you don't have to go looking for him. He'll find you. Yep. Yep. Likewise, if you want to live an immoral life and you want to justify that to yourselves, then others of like mind will find you. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I just made this comment the other day that if you're clean and sober, you don't tend to hang around in crack dens. Therefore, <laughs> you don't tend to get hassled by the police. Mm-hmm. So when someone says to me, well, I'm just so sick of the police hassling me. And I, in, in the context of addiction, I always ask, who were you with and what were you doing when they hassled you? Yep. Because I've never, maybe in the last 20 years since I got cleaned up, I've never been hassled by the police. I've been mm-hmm. stopped. I've been you know, waiting for my son in the high school parking lot at 11 o'clock at night, had the police stop and like, hey, what are you doing here kind of thing. But they never like hassled me. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when I was 23, I got hassled a lot by the police. Why? Yep. Well, turns out if you use drugs, narcotics, hang out with other narcotics users, and all that goes along with it, you're kind of easy to find, you know, you're kind of easy to profile, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So I often ask that question then of other addicts in recovery, did you relapse or were you in the wrong place with the wrong people? And that's a part of recovery and sobriety is you can't hang out with people that use drugs if you're trying to stay clean from drugs. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just, well, I can hang out with these people and not use. That's fine. I don't, necessarily agree with that 100% because you know temptation crouches at the door but there's a lot that goes with hanging out with drug users like maybe the police show up and since you're with them they're going to assume you're also using Mm -hmm. so if you don't want to be hassled by the police for drug use don't hang around with people who use narcotics well and this goes back to the point also that uh, Pressfield is bringing up in purity of the weapon the reason this uh, idea that they call purity of the weapon is so important is so that you don't end up unnecessarily creating more enemies. Right. So with these, these um, you know, carpet bombing style tactics, say uh, on social media mm-hmm. that are so prevalent, these people end up creating enemies out of their former allies. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to that point, too, since you bring it up. The nootropics have kicked in, so my brain's firing on several cylinders. Um, <laughs> is that when I go to a Muay Thai competition or a jiu-jitsu competition, most of the people there are Muay Thai practitioners or, or jiu-jitsu players. Because to the general public, going to a Muay Thai competition or a jiu-jitsu competition is not necessarily high on their list of entertainment for the week. Those are the most peaceful, respectful easygoing, relaxed events that I've ever attended mm-hmm. because 99% of the room is trained killers. Yep. And yet that also means that they're very humble people. They're very self-aware people. They're very respectful people. 
And there's no shouting. There's no insulting the referee for a bad decision. Yep. There's no telling the fighters they're bums or you know get back up and fight like a man. None of that stuff happens. But to contrast that, go to a UFC or an MMA event that's open oh, to the public. Gosh. Yeah. And the only people that get belligerent are those people who are not trained fighters. So yeah, the, but they've got the tap out shirt. So it's they've got the, the shirt thing, and the right? barbed wire tattoo around their arm. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, you're always aware of who in the room is not a trained fighter by how boisterous they are. Mm-hmm. And I would even argue, at least in my experience, and this is just my experience, most of the people that I train with when we go to these events, they also don't overconsume alcohol. Yep. Because they're aware, at least they've said to me, you know what, I just don't like being in this type of a situation and getting overly sloppy. Mm-hmm. And obviously the consequences should be apparent to anybody that's listening. If you get sloppy at an event where everyone's a trained fighter, it, it might not end well for you. Mm-hmm. Or it could end well just in the sense that we all say, hey, buddy, you know what, you're, you're embarrassing yourself and let's not do this here. Versus yep. I've seen belligerent drunks at, drunks at MMA events, especially small regional ones, where the bouncers have to be brought in and, and then other people have to step in and they essentially have to carry the guy out you know, by his arms and legs within a headlock. And it's like, dude, you embarrassed yourself. You just embarrassed the girl you're with and the two other buddies that are there with you. Yep. Nobody thinks you're a big man. Nobody's impressed by what you just did. Mm-hmm. And you trying to fight your way back into the arena. Again, it's, it's, this is not going to end well for you on any level because what happened? You don't start out with the decision. Well, I'll use this example to illustrate it actually, because I'm thinking about it. So visiting this woman in prison and she was in jail because she held up a liquor store and then fled the scene of the accident. And there was a high speed police chase down the highway, her and the two partners that they robbed the liquor or the bar with. So as she's talking to me about all this, telling me this, she said, you know, I know it was a mistake to to hold up the bar. And I said, no, 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 that was not your mistake. Your mistake was opening the door to those two guys in the first place and getting in the car with a shotgun to go rob the bar. Mm-hmm. the bar was a consequence of the bad decision. It wasn't the bad decision. If you had closed the door and said, I'm not going with you, that's a terrible idea. We're going to get caught. Because especially, it's the bar that we go to every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they know our body type. They know our voices. Like, we're not fooling anybody. Yep. The mistake was simply opening the door to that. And as I said earlier, you know, sin crouches at the door, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And if you let it in, it will rule over you. So likewise, then, when you enter into a situation where you're not going to be in control of yourself and you're not going to recognize, okay, there are certain things that I can do or say that are going to lead to a negative outcome. But there's also things I can do or say that will lead to a positive outcome, at least as much as it is within my ability to uh, enact that. Yeah. Yep. Rectitude, then, is, as he says, in a, it's conduct in accordance with reason without wavering. And by reason, he means it's reasonable. It's thought mm-hmm. through. Yeah. So before you act impulsively, take a step back, detach, and look at, observe the situation and ask yourself, is this conduct right? Yeah. Is this just? Yep. Or is the consequence of the next decision I make, the next act I take, going to lead down a dark path, a destructive yeah. path? a path of embarrassment, shame, maybe physical hurt, arrest, whatever it may be. Simply ask yourself the question, should I even be here with these two right now? Mm-hmm. 
And if your gut says no, get out of that situation quickly. Yep. So to continue then, even in the latter days of feudalism, when the long continuance of peace brought leisure into the life of the warrior class with its dissipations of all kinds and accomplishments of gentle arts, the epithet Gishi, a man of rectitude, was considered superior to any name that signified mastery of learning or art. The 47 faithfuls, of whom so much is made in our popular education, are known in common parlance as the 47 Gishi. In times when cunning artifice was liable to pass for military tact and downright falsehood for the ruse de guerre, this manly virtue, frank and honest, was a jewel that shone the brightest and was most highly praised. Rectitude is a twin brother to valor, another martial virtue. But before proceeding to speak of valor, let me linger a little while on what I may term a derivation from rectitude, which, at first, deviating slightly from its original, became more and more removed from it, until its meeting was perverted in the popular acceptance. I speak of giri, literally the right reason, but which came in time to mean a vague sense of duty, which public opinion expects an incumbent to fulfill. In its original unalloyed sense, it meant duty, pure and simple. Hence, we speak of the giri we owe to parents, to superiors, to inferiors, to society at large, and so forth. In these instances, giri is duty. For what else is duty than what right reason demands and commands us to do? Should not right reason be our categorical imperative? There you go. That's exactly what I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, he brings up a very important point. This idea of duty being correctly understood in accordance with right reason, not impulsiveness, not your feelings, but reason. And that's not to say that reason cannot completely fall onto its ass because it can, excuse me, but when we attempt to say your duty conflicts with right reason, then we're immediately going to create problems. Right. Well, let's think about it this way too. Let's walk it back. So first we need a foundation, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. The foundation would be, let's say, a code of ethics, a warrior code mm-hmm. in this instance, this context. So one, we have to lay the foundation and let it cure. So let's say it's, you've read Bushido, The Warrior Ethos, The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, Cyrus the Great by Xenophon, whatever you read, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Mm-hmm. You decide, okay, this is, this is right reason. This is thought out, time-tested, battle-hardened philosophy by which I may live my life. So this is the foundation. This is my code of ethics now. Now, from that code of ethics comes thought. You're thinking through this critically. Why do I like this? Why does this resonate with me? Why do I think this will help me change my life for the better? And then you act upon that in your life. And it's positive. It's negative. There's successes. There's struggles. You fail. You learn. You grow, you are strengthened in, in your, your mind and in your body and emotionally. And then out of that comes this right reason then. Because as we discussed in the previous episode, thought and action can only occur simultaneously to one another. Mm-hmm. When one, you've thought through what you're about to do, but also then in doing it, this then creates another set of thoughts. 
it's not one or the other, but both and at the same time. So without a code of ethics, a warrior ethos, you can't really think rightly. And if you're not thinking rightly, how then can you act with valor or with rectitude? So then going back to my example, if you don't have a, a code, a foundation, then you're not going to be in control of yourself in a social setting, which then allows you to get sloppy drunk mm -hmm. or get in a car with the wrong kinds of people by meaning you know, criminals. If you had a code of ethics, if you had this fence line around your intellectual and personal property, so to speak, then when those people approach your fence line, you decide whether or not to let them in. But if they're not going to adhere to the same code of ethics by which you live, are you then that tempted to let them in? Mm -hmm. The answer is no. Or at least if you do, you're only going to let them in the front door and then you're going to tell them, here are the ground rules. As long as you're in my house, no drugs on the premises. If you're going to be around me, leave your guns at home. Don't even bother to ask me to go out and run with you. I'm not, I'm not down with that anymore. Whatever it may be. And it's like when my mom visits. My mom's a moral weather vane. Whichever direction the wind blows, as long as it benefits her, it's moral. It's good. We're not raising our kids that way. Because I don't want them to grow up the way that I did. Because it didn't end well for me. <laughs> at least initially. Mm -hmm. But we're not raising our kids that way. So when my mom comes as a guest, there are ground rules. And she either abides by those ground rules or she's not allowed to come in the house. Yep. And she didn't like it at first and she still doesn't like it, but guess what? It's not her choice because there, here's the code. Here's the ground rules. You're a guest in my house. So long as you're a guest in my house, I will do everything for you to take care of you. You're under my protection, my care, but there's rules. Mm -hmm. And I think that we've discussed off air plenty. Socially, this is definitely one of our critiques of society is the lack of ground rules and the, moral weather vane of people. Well, I'm just going to do what feels good or is right to me yep. and damn the consequences to others. Mm -hmm. It's like saying, well, I don't care what you do in the privacy of your own home so long as it doesn't hurt me. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with that is then when it does hurt me, it's too late to do anything about it. Precisely. Something I've noticed around the same time that uh, Jordan Peterson um, uh, Jocko Willink, uh, these people started becoming popular, coincided with a, I, I'm not sure what you would call it, but a, uh, a red pilling, if you will, of mm -hmm. large segments, at least here in the U.S. And this is good. These are people uh, looking around whether popular or not, or just, you know, quote unquote, regular people. These are people looking around and going, oh, wow, we have a number of issues and we're seeing it on Twitter and, and you know, TV and all these places. And on the one hand, while this is good that these people are recognizing these things and they're beginning to say, this is wrong, uh, I myself am not going to live this way, the question still remains, is it too late? Right. And so you have the rise of outrage culture, which yep. coincides with the victimhood culture, which the undergirding of that, the ethic of that is it's somebody else's fault. Mm -hmm. Well, and somebody else's problem. Right. There's a lot of people who look around and say, well, uh, the, the SJW thing mm -hmm. is wrong, but 
Uh, yeah. What can I do about it? Right. Someone phrased it this way for me. No one is responsible, but everyone is to blame. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yep. Is who's responsible for what's happening to you? Mm-hmm. Well, mm, mm, nobody. You know. Yeah. Well then what do we do about that? Well, we got to find somebody to blame for my problem. Mm-hmm. If I'm responsible for being in jail, who can I blame for being in jail so that I don't have to take responsibility for my actions? Yep. Yep. Well, there's that, uh, that great line in the movie, um, V for Vendetta, mm-hmm. you know, where he's, he, at the end, he's on the TV, you know, broadcasting his, his manifesto. And he has this line where he says, you know, those who are especially responsible for this, uh, you know, totalitarian regime in England there will be held to account. But if you, the viewer, are looking for someone to blame, you need only look in the mirror. Right. And this is not something that's easy. It, mm-hmm. it is not something that is easy to look at yourself and go, well, hey, this outrage culture, all these things going on, I am partly, at least, responsible for right. it. This well, point then, to you about, oh, God, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, this then asks the question, as, as a person who is partly responsible for it, as we all are, what then can I do to help address it? And so mm-hmm. it must start with me. Mm-hmm. I was going to say to add another layer to well, V for Vendetta, for example, go online if you want and read Alan Moore, who's the original author of V for Vendetta, the graphic novel, go read his critique of the movie Ooh. and how he critiques and slams the, the movie makers, the producers for bastardizing his story and actually missing the point. And it also raises the point, I was just thinking about this, I was talking about this the other day, is the most recent remake of The Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio actually ends up promoting the very thing that the original book is trying to critique. Mm. The thing that the movie celebrates is the very thing that Fitzgerald in his book is saying, yeah, this is not the way to go. Yeah, yeah. So in the present tense, and we were talking about this before we um, hit record, we seem to lack a knowledge of history and an ability to think critically, mm-hmm. both about the things that impress us and the things that disturb us. And we tend to just throw a blanket over these things and say good or evil. Yeah. If it's good, give me more. If it's evil, destroy it. Yep. And this goes to the point that we've been discussing since we started this podcast, which is if we can't, if we have no foundation to work from, then how can we discuss topics that are not really that tangible, ideologically speaking, like truth, justice, morality. These aren't things that you can just go out in the street and pick up on laying next to the road. You can't be like, oh, look, I found this, this morality today. This is, a really good, this is a really good piece of morality I found on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. These are things that are intangible in a certain sense. And then they are made tangible. They're made manifest when we act upon them. But if we're incapable of even having the discussion other than orange man bad, Mm-hmm. then how are we any different than animals? Well, we're not. We're not. That's something, um, there was a person who asked me uh, a few days ago, um, oh, well, uh, you have a podcast. What is it about? <laughs> I've had uh, that question too. It, well, and it's, I, I always appreciate those questions. Um, 
but I simply pointed out, you know, well, first and foremost, this is a conversation that Donovan and I are having between ourselves Mm -hmm. to answer these same questions. But then also the, the hope is that in this conversation, everyone else, you guys can all join in with us. Right, exactly. Whether it's actually with myself or Donovan or both of us or just in your own home, among your own friends. Right, absolutely. Because these are important questions. And when, uh, when Nitabe here is describing that right reason – how can we even know what that right reason is when, you know, I hate to say it, we really have not been equipped to have these discussions. Right. Well, we don't, we don't have the classical education curriculum like they used to. So we're not Mm -hmm. studying the classics and philosophy. We're not learning Latin and Greek so we can read them in the original languages. We're not engaged with our history in the same way that they were even 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And to your point too, and this I think is actually really important in order to come to right reason, you can't sit alone on a mountain or in a cave or out in the woods and come to these conclusions on your own. Exactly. Because how do you know that your great idea is great unless you're in conversation with others mm-hmm. who can well, that, validate or say, yeah, but have you thought about this? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That everyone has in their mind the perfect utopia. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if only the world would pay me, I could build the, the perfect world, right? right? Well, that's all well and good, and it seems amazing until you walk out your door and get punched in the face by someone whose utopia disagrees with yours. Right. Yeah, you're in the way of me actually realizing my utopia. Yeah. Uh, Which, well, by the way, for those of you who don't know, utopia means no place or nowhere. Yes, it does. <laughs> yep. Yep. Ooh, topos, no place. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and there's a reason it's called that. Language mm-hmm. is actually important. Mm-hmm. But to, to go to your point, um, this lack of ability to have these conversations, this, this lack of ability to not get offended and upset when someone's utopia conflicts with my own right. is vitally important and i mean if you don't if you don't believe what i just said is true i challenge you to go on to twitter <laughs> and just scroll through it for you know 5 minutes right and what you're going to see is a large segment of people at least on twitter mm-hmm. uh, you know i don't i don't know what percentage of the population that may reflect though i have my suspicions but you will see a large a large large group of people who the very second something conflicts with their idea of utopia they are utterly incapable of dealing with that they are utterly incapable of mm-hmm. having that discussion and thinking through what other people might say well, one, they can't distinguish themselves from their opinion, and therefore everything they say is personal. And two, they don't recognize that Twitter isn't real, that Twitter itself is actually a utopia. It's a no place. What? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> so you have these two things. One, it's not real, but you, you make it real by treating it as such. You allow it to manifest itself in real ways in your personal life. And two, you've not actually learned to distinguish your thoughts, your opinions from your identity yourself. 
Yeah. And there's a great liberation in that, by the way, for those of you listening, to recognize that your thoughts and opinions aren't what define you as a human being. Yeah. Just that, as Marcus Aurelius says, all of our statements, our opinions, and all of our thoughts are perception or perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, unpack that a little bit. That's actually a really good point and comes right. back to this right reason, if you would. Right. Well, it's just on the one hand, what comes out of my brain is unique to me. It's my, my experiences, my knowledge, uh, my own thoughts and how I choose to express them in the moment, <clears throat> excuse me, and putting aside neurochemistry and so forth and my center brain versus my frontal lobe and everything that happens there. Basically what it comes out of my mouth is my opinion and I can try and present it as an objective fact. Two plus two is four. We've all accepted that that's an objective fact. Two plus two is four. And yet if I say that a good man is this, that, and the other thing based on my reading of Nutobe and Marcus Aurelius and others, that's my opinion. That doesn't mean actually that I am, that that is the objective truth. That is simply what I have concluded to be true. This is based on these readings of these men who learned it from other men. This is the truth. This is what it means to be a good man, a moral man. But you may disagree with that based on your readings of other people that I haven't read or that I have read, but you got something from them that I did not. Or even the same people. Or even the same people, exactly. Like you talked about earlier with experiences. Yeah. Therefore, let us come together and reason, as the the Greeks used to say, in order that we can be a good person and therefore help our neighbors and ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's actually Marcus Aurelius says that's the, actually the reason you're, you're here on earth is to be a good person and help others. Yeah. And yep. yet we have to ask what, it, what is the name? What is good? What does that even mean? Yep. And then second of all, what is help? What does that look like? You know, mm-hmm. as we discussed and if and we don't come my to, neighbor, uh, right. Who's my neighbor? Right. There's a third question even, right. So that's a good example. So I came up with two questions out of that statement by Aurelius. You came up with a third that I hadn't thought about. Now, if I decide that there's only two questions that come from that statement and that that's just, that's just a fact, there's only two questions. And then you come up with a third question. If I don't recognize that my opinion, not objective fact of that reading is, is what's coming out of my mouth. How I'm, I'm formulating these questions. Then I'll say to you, Bill, no, you're wrong. There's only two questions. Well, you ask why? Because I know for a fact, I've read it, I've studied him, there's only two questions. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a fact because you just came up with a third question. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the fact that I only asked two questions does not invalidate the third. Mm-hmm. But if I come down on that side of, of dogmatics, let's say, mm-hmm. there are only two questions and all other questions are impertinent or wrong. Well, then, of course, I'm going to not listen. I don't want to engage in dialogue with you. I don't want to engage you because I now have decided that my identity, who I am as a human being, is tied up with the fact that there's only two questions to Aurelius' statement. Yeah. And if you contradict me, I've lost my identity. I, yeah. I'm, or I'm, in, I'm in danger of losing my identity because you're upsetting my, my intellectual apple cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus well, not only could I be wrong, I probably am. You brought up the the fact that two plus two equals four. Um, mm-hmm. Although I I once heard a mathematician, I didn't understand what he was telling well, me. We can ignore quantum physics for the moment and just right. We we can all agree that according at least to elementary arithmetic, two <laughs> right. plus two equals four. Right. Right. 
I can test that. I can verify it myself. I can, right. I can grab my little dry erase marker and do it right on my board. And it's mm-hmm. always going to come out for unless mm-hmm. I screw it up. Right. Aside from elementary arithmetic, there are very, very few things in this life that are not an appeal to authority. Yeah, right. So when we're talking about rectitude and justice, this this righteousness that Natobe is talking about here, we are appealing to the authority of Natobe mm-hmm. and Xenophon and, and all of these authors that we're reading. Right. That doesn't mean that I necessarily understand or am correctly interpreting Natobe. Mm-hmm. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean he's correct. I think he is. Well, here's um, a good point too, to, to your point before you get too much further. If I had read yeah. this book 20 years ago, I would have thrown it away mm-hmm. as just nonsense. Yeah. It's and an old dead guy. It's an old yeah. dead guy. He's Japanese, samurai culture, blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. That went out with gunpowder. Right. Whereas, yeah, I <laughs> read it now and I say to myself, to your point, not only am I going to read this, I'm going to commit this to memory and then I'm going to manifest what he's talking about in my life. Mm-hmm. So my 20 three-year-old self would be repulsed by my 48-year-old self today. <laughs> well, in a lot of ways, I have found that the the older I get, the more I value these abstract concepts, the more I value the rules that accompany them. Sure. Well, I think with with age, with surviving 365 days traveling around the sun comes wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the wisdom comes from failure. For those of you who are younger who don't know, most wisdom comes from failure. Don't do what I did. Yeah. But it's that experience is that if you live long enough, you'll have experiences. And then when you read these abstract concepts, they can you can ground them in your experiences, as I'm doing now by just speaking anecdotally to by way of explaining yeah. these philosophical concepts. Well, and that doesn't mean that one ought to go out and put themselves into situations where they're going to fail catastrophically, uh, as in my case. Right. True. The, this comes back to the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. We're in a very knowledgeable time right now. I can get on Google and I can look at whether I understand it or not. Right. I can look at the the formulae required to put a freaking rocket on the moon. Right. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That that's a great thing. That's really cool. Wisdom, however, and the difference here between knowledge and wisdom is the ability to look at that same information and to look at the failures in mm-hmm. those formulae, the, the failures that went into all of that and not take that same road. Right. And I think this is one of the biggest, um, there's a uh, YouTube channel I watch and uh, the, the guy who does it, who knows what his real name is, but uh, it's called It's a Gundam, right? Mm-hmm. And this guy is a, uh, he, he's a, uh, what, a cultural critic, I guess might be um, the word for it. And something he points out, although in a, in a hilarious way, is the fact that we look around right now and we see all these problems, right? 
and whether they are legitimate problems or not, um, again, appeal to authority. But what we lack in a lot of these critiques is the wisdom to recognize whether our solutions to those problems are actually feasible. Mm -hmm. So the argument of, well, you know, the problem with Venezuela, the problem with China, and, and all of these places is that, well, real socialism has just never been tried. And yet, I mean, just look at the 20th century. We tried. Oh, it, it's been tried. And right. everyone is convinced that their version of it is the real version. Pick up Mao's little red book. I was going to say, that's the hubris of youth too, that every generation thinks it can improve upon and fix the failures mm -hmm. of the previous generation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and without the wisdom to look at those same failures and say, mm, maybe we ought to go about this differently. Right, right. Um, but to, to pull this back then to the point, this is where right reason is so important. Correct. The, the ability to say, well, I have this great idea. Now let's field test it. Let's... One, one last thing for myself too, with the appeal to authority, I think of Friedrich Nietzsche's point on the will to power, which is mm. when the appeal to authority, especially in the present tense, the appeal to authority is me, that I'm the ultimate authority, yep. especially on social media, I'm the authority. And then I just try and gather like-minded individuals around me Yep. you basically enforce my point or even more so we need to legislate my ideas and then say, well, the state can fix this problem if they just do it the way that I want them to. Or Silicon Valley. Or Silicon yeah. Valley and so forth, yeah. right? Speaking of Google censoring information. Um, right. The problem with appeal to authority, as Nietzsche points out, is that then when it becomes a matter of will to power, my willpower is much stronger than yours. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, this is the way it is. And I say, no, it's not. Now, what are you going to do to enforce your ideals upon me in the present tense if it's you versus me? Well, and that's where all of this breaks down. Right. That's where the rubber really literally hits the road mm -hmm. is that this will to power attitude, which is just ubiquitous at mm -hmm. this time. Right necessarily means that it has to come down to conflict. Right. It has to come down to you and I either trading blows or shooting at one another in order to prove who is right. Right, exactly. And if you're dead and bloody on the street, I'm right. Yeah. Well, my willpower was superior right. in that case. You're a slave, accept your slave morality, and mm -hmm. I will continue to ascend. Right. And um, your point, too, of the difference between experience and knowledge, I know those who fail to comprehend history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Experience has taught me we're doomed because <laughs> oh, no one in any generation has ever learned from history in order not to repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm -hmm. Again, all I have to do is go back to Street Without Joy by Bernard Fall and then read yep. any book by a Vietnam vet or just go talk to my dad and go, did you guys repeat the exact same failings of the French on the exact same plot of land? And he'll say, sure did. Yeah. yeah. So you learned nothing? Nope. And it, this isn't a new problem either. You know, no. take the uh, Romans, for example, who after conquering Greece basically became 
Greeks <laughs> right. a different language. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. Even a different language. They just renamed their gods even. Yeah, they they took everything about Greek culture, and in in that respect, it's it's kind of interesting that uh, who really conquered whom, <laughs> right? But good point. They repeated the same mm-hmm. mistakes that Athens made mm-hmm. that led to their own downfall, right? Um, we presently here in America are repeating the same mistakes that every empire who has come before us has made. Mm-hmm. This example, Rome. People are uh, we we keep pointing to hubris, and I include myself when I make that statement. When I point out hubris, I include myself because my own life is, oh gosh, in some ways a caricature of what not to do. Mm-hmm. Well, so this we're go recording ahead. a podcast in which we are having a discussion that we hope other people listen to, and say, yeah, I'm going to do that too. Mm-hmm. If you don't, if you don't grasp the irony of that, right, when it comes to matters of pride and hubris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've definitely missed the boat on what's happening here. Yep. You should definitely listen to me because I have all the answers. Right, right. Exactly. And if you don't think so, <laughs> I've got a book to prove it. Exactly. Exactly. So oh, back to gosh. the book then. The third part here to wrap this up. Giri primarily meant no more than duty, and I dare say its etymology was derived from the fact that in our conduct, say to our parents. Though love should be the only motive, lacking that, there must be some other authority to enforce filial piety. And they formulated this authority in Giri. Very rightly did they formulate this authority, Giri, since if love does not rush to deeds of virtue, recourse must be had to man's intellect, and his reason must be quickened to convince him of the necessity of acting aright. The same is true of any other moral obligation. The instant duty becomes onerous, right reason steps in to prevent our shirking it. Giri thus understood as a severe taskmaster, with a birch rod in his hand to make sluggards perform their part. It is a secondary power in ethics. As a motive, it is infinitely inferior to the Christian doctrine of love, which should be the law. I deem it a product of the conditions of an artificial society of a society in which accident of birth and unmerited favor instituted class distinctions, in which the family was the social unit, in which seniority of age was of more account than superiority of talents, in which natural affections had often to succumb before arbitrary mad-made customs. Because of this very artificiality, Giri in time degenerated into a vague sense of propriety, called upon to explain this and sanction that. As, for example, why a mother must, if need be, sacrifice all her other children in order to save the firstborn. Or why a daughter must sell her chastity to get funds to pay for the father's dissipation and the like. That's a little crime and punishment reference right there. Mm-hmm. Starting as right reason, Giri has, in my opinion, often stooped to casuistry. It has even denigrated into cowardly fear of censure. I might say of Giri what Scott wrote of patriotism, that, quote, as it is the fairest, so it is often the most suspicious mask of other feelings. Carried beyond or below right reason, Giri becomes or became a monstrous misnomer. It harbored under its wings every sort of sophistry and hypocrisy. It would have been easily turned into a nest of cowardice if Bushido 
had not a keen and correct sense of courage, the spirit of daring and bearing. Great stuff. I was going to say that's essentially summing up what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's fascinating here. He brings up casuistry, mm-hmm. which is just, Oh my gosh, that is uh, the name of the game nowadays. If I can reason my my way into parting you from your money or whatever, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sophistry, for those of you listening, to sum up, it's a medieval term, or at least it comes around in the Middle Ages. Yeah. It refers to, in, in that context, it refers to theologians who essentially preach and teach whatever the highest pay person that can pay them the most wants to hear a sophist is someone who has knowledge and apparent and theoretically a lot of wisdom but the way in which they apply that knowledge and wisdom is oh you want to pay me to tell you the right way to go let me tell you what you want to hear mm-hmm. yeah this is what sycophants do you know right um oh you want me to well this is in a lot of ways what ethics in many, many institutions has devolved into <laughs> has, a yeah. simple rubber stamp for the thing you wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, um, I think that uh, this or that segment of the population should be killed. Okay. Well, if we, if we look at this question from the angle of cost, then yeah, I I think that is completely morally and ethically reasonable. Yeah, go ahead. The danger of this idea that is so prominent today in modern ethics is the idea that because problem A exists, I can find a uh, it just precisely that the the rubber stamping of things that are wrong mm-hmm. things that in some cases are even outright evil but because i can come up with a clever argument or dissertation on them it's now acceptable right well it's it's the path of least resistance the death drive as freud names it which is the downhill slide requires very little effort on our part. Once we pick up momentum, it's kind of self-driving. Yep. Therefore, the feel good equals morally good. Argument feels bad is morally bad. Pain and struggle and affliction are bad because they make me feel bad. You said mm-hmm. something that makes me feel bad, therefore I'm offended or hurt or, or triggered. Yeah. All of these things are, as he points out, when you don't have a right reason to step in to prevent one from shirking their duty, Well, then when it's my duty to take this information and process it and think critically through it or interact with you in a way that I can detach from my opinions and have a a friendly conversation rather than an antagonistic one, Mm -hmm. again, I'm going to make you take responsibility for both yourself and myself. Yep. This is your problem now, not my problem. Yep. We call this passive aggressive behavior sometimes. Mm -hmm. The point being is that, as I said, without that foundation to work from, this code to work off of, what is right reason? How can one think rightly and therefore determine this is the way that I'm going to go and I'm not going to deviate from this? And yeah, it is a stern taskmaster, as he says. Yeah. Well, it ought to be. It, well, um, exactly. The sluggard that uh, duty here uh, 
is coming after is you and I. Right. Because uh, given the chance, that's what we're going to do. We're, of course. we're going to find ways to shirk this. I don't want um, to train every day. No. There's no. many. This is the whole point of like David Goggins and Jocko and others who say, don't wait for motivation. Yep. Motivation comes and goes. Discipline is the key. And therefore, do I want to go train last night? Did I want to teach class last night? No. I wanted to chill out, lay in the bed, and watch TV. Mm-hmm. Did I go? Of course I went. <laughs> Why? Discipline. Yep. Well, and the life of discipline is not this. Uh, there's a tendency to think of that as if it's as if uh, you are now Sisyphus. and. <laughs> right. The rock is just going to roll back down no matter what you do. That, that's not correct. Um, the reality that, that Aristotle and now is, is thankfully becoming more popular has uh, popularized is that the disciplined life equals actual freedom. freedom right. You know, what does that mean? Right. If I'm dinking around and then expected to... Uh, you know, sit down and watch a TV show or something with my wife. Mm-hmm. I can't actually enjoy that, right? Because there's all this other stuff that I ought to have done, yeah, which is going to weigh on me. Could have, I would yeah. have, but yeah. Um, oh gosh, right. <laughs> and what do we learn about excuses, children? <laughs> all your excuses are lies. lies. I, I can't it's even do the lies. voice. I yeah. know. But no, you're, I just had lunch with a friend yesterday, and that's the first question he asked. He's like, dude, how do you have time to do three podcasts with all the other things you do? And I said, discipline. Get up at 4.30 every day. Do what you need to do from 4.30 to 6, then from 6 to 7, 7 to 8, and so forth and so on. Is that you're, you'd be amazed, if you haven't done this, how much more time you have when you actually prioritize and execute on your plans for the day. Mm-hmm. For me, anyways, to kind of wrap up my thoughts on this episode, what this foundation, then this warrior code has done for me and this, this code of ethics or, or so forth, conduct, it's led to discipline and the freedom that comes from that discipline so that I have simplified everything following Marcus Aurelius' teachings that you know true wealth lies in simplicity of wants and needs, mm-hmm. is that there's only three things that matter to me. My faith, my family, and fighting. Three Fs. It's an alliteration. Deal with it. I like it. Right? Faith, fighting, family. Which means anything that does not contribute to those three, let's say, the, the legs or pillars that my family rests upon, or my life rests upon more specifically, I will interact with you, I'll engage with you, but you're not a priority for me. And yes, is that selfish? 100%. But it's also selfishly unselfish because I want to devote all of my time and attention and energy to the things that matter most to me in my life because I do actually embrace Memento Mori. And I embrace the fact that within Christian theology, uh, a baptized Christian is given today to live in, not yesterday and not tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But Marcus Aurelius embraces the same basic approach to life, which is tomorrow you die, so live today as if it's your last day. Mm-hmm. AA, we embrace this ethic in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is yesterday has gone beyond recovery. Tomorrow's a mystery. You have today to focus on sobriety. Don't worry about yesterday and tomorrow. They're not real anyways. And for those of you who are listening who never thought about that before, yesterday and tomorrow aren't real. They're yep. abstractions. The only thing that's real is right now. And therefore, 
ask yourself the question, if I died right now, am I satisfied? And if I did live every day, if it was my last day, would I still make the same decisions? Would I still be in the same relationships? Would I still be at the same job? Would I still be attending the same school for the same major? Mm -hmm. Would I still be sitting on the couch talking about what I should be doing? Or am I thinking about the past and what I could have done differently? Or in the present tense, are you living without regrets because you recognize that within this code that you live by, all of those past failures taught you something that makes you who you are in the present tense. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you don't have to regret the past. You don't have to be shackled to it and be a slave to it so long as you've learned from it and allow it to be your teacher mm. to better you, to allow you to grow and improve in the present tense and to be a good person and to help other people. And hopefully then, if they want, share with them your failures and say, hey, this is how I failed. And therefore, if you can learn anything from my failure, great bonus. Like there's two 19-year-olds I mentor who I train with. And that's essentially how I talk when they ask me questions. It's just like, well, here's what I did. Mm -hmm. And this worked, this doesn't work. Do with it what you want. If you don't need it, throw it in the garbage. I don't need it anymore. If you don't act upon what I say or my counsel, guess what? I don't take it personally. Mm -hmm. I'm just here to offer my help. And if what I have isn't helpful, hey, okay, sorry. Maybe next time. Mm -hmm. But it goes to Natobi's point of righteousness, right, right action, or doing enough of what is right. Yeah. And as I said, do what's right, not what's easy. Mm -hmm. And as Natobe says, it's, it's a stern taskmaster. It's a rigorous life, but it's the path of freedom. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for me anyways, it's what's yeah. allowed me to actually say the past year has been the best year of my life. Hands down, not even a question, not even like a false statement or I, I, I'm going to say this and hope it's true. No. Like literally last year has been the best year of my life because of discipline and because of discovering people like Pressfield and Natobe and Xenophon and Marcus Aurelius and others who I read in the past. But like I said about Natobe, stuff that I read 20 plus years ago, I just, I didn't get it. I didn't see the point. I didn't see the point of being a good man or at least not the way that they laid it out. Yeah. But now that I'm older and I have kids and people, more and more people all the time that depend on me, then I can say, yeah, I want to have this conversation with other people. I want to have a podcast where I have a conversation. I want to write a book and publish it. I want to train. I want to teach in Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu. Like these are all things I want to do. So I'm going to do them. Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, whether it's tomorrow or 25 years from now, I'm not going to be sitting there saying, I really think I could have, or you know what I should have, or well, I would have, but I'd rather live with, I can, I did, and I will. Mm -hmm. And if I fail, I fail. Learn from it. And if I succeed, I succeed. Learn from it. Well, and the regrets that you find at the deathbed have to do with, was I a good person? Did I help my neighbors? Right. Every eulogy ever at a funeral. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. We're not regretting that, you know, I didn't write uh, the great American novel. Mm-hmm. We're not regretting that I didn't found that, you know, trillion dollar company or whatever. The regrets, as I have heard them, are always, I wasn't a good enough person. I didn't help my neighbor enough. Right. I was too selfish. 
Right. I didn't spend enough time with my wife. I was too preoccupied with work. I wasn't, a, I wasn't there for my kids when they were growing up. Therefore, we're estranged. X, Y, and Z. Usually mm -hmm. it involves money and work mm -hmm. at the expense of relationships. Yep. Yep. But again, that comes down to, well, what's your definition of success? If mm -hmm. it's having a lot of money in the bank and a boat and a cabin up on a lake, go for it. But also understand there's sacrifices. There's a trade-off there. Mm -hmm. And the trade-off is your relationships will suffer. Yeah. You know, I'm not the wealthiest, I'm not the richest person in the world, but I consider myself immensely wealthy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, extra, if you looked at me, ob observed me from the outside, you'd say, well, he's poor. And I'd say, financially, I'm poor. Materially, I might be poor, but I actually consider myself extremely wealthy because of the people that are in my life mm. and the things that I am allowed to do. Yeah. And the fact that I, basically consider all of life a gift and everything in it a gift too, which I think is an important point for another episode maybe is to talk about that, the turn from life as burden to life as gift. Yeah. So that yeah. not only are our afflictions and struggles, not burdens, but gifts, but that goes to the point of perspective as well. So maybe we'll come back to that in the next episode. Yeah. You got any final yeah. thoughts you want to speak up on to wrap this episode up? I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Shout out to Nootropics. Thanks for helping me through this episode. <laughs> coffee and all the other stuff that I pumped into my body this morning. I'm a walking chemical chemistry set. Mm. Better life through chemistry, right? Better life through chemistry. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you again to everyone who stuck with us this far for giving us your attention and time. I hope we haven't wasted it. If you think we deserve it, please go leave us uh, a review on um, Apple Podcast. And go check out Anchor FM. And you can contact us through Anchor FM if there's a book that you'd like us to discuss. You can find us on social media. You can find us on Twitch. We're everywhere. Mm -hmm. We are coming. That's right. We are coming for your, Barbara. We are coming for your follows and likes. That's right. Affirm <laughs> us. Affirm us. Yes, affirm us. Give us those dopamine hits. That's right, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you. <laughs>